Hey, this is Dewey from Pure Pleasure on Jabberjaw Media. I wanted to tell you guys about the Patreon for the show. It's called the Pleasure Seekers Club, and there's two levels. There's the $5 level and the $10 level. And all this is, guys, is to help support the show, help support the cost of putting the show out, um, you know, time spent uh, building the show, hosting costs, travel costs to do the in-person interviews that you guys like so much. Um, it all costs money. And I always try to find the best deal for sure uh, because I do have a day job as well. But having that support on the Patreon is definitely going to help bring more in-person interviews, more travel, more uh, updated uh, graphics, hosting, websites, all that stuff. So, um, And if you like the show, $5 a month or $10 a month really helps out. I know it's kind of uh, an interesting thing with the Patreon when something's already free. Uh, but it is always going to be free. But if you want to support the show a little bit more, I'd absolutely appreciate it. Uh, you can pay either $5 or $10 a month. We'll try to do some special things for the patrons as well as we go. Um, but it's just a way to support the show in a different way. And uh, like I said, I really appreciate you guys coming back week after week. That's the most important thing I can ask for. So definitely go over and check out the Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Podcast. Once again, that is patreon.com slash Podcast. Sign up today and join the community and help out the show. Keep it growing. And I thank you so much. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of that one time on tour, part of the Jabberjaw Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with guests about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of The Offspring, Thrice, Rancid, Rise Against, and more. Listen and subscribe at JabberjawMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. for a new set of scrims or a backdrop for your live show? What about wall flags to have at your merch table or online store? This is Dewey from Pure Pleasure, and I want to tell you about ArtistFlags.com. ArtistFlags.com has the lowest pricing and the best quality around. Their prices start at $119, and they can help you choose the best material and sizes for your band, all while keeping your budget in mind. Use the coupon code PEERFLAG, that's P-E-E-R-F-L-A-G at checkout to get $30 off your next order. Satisfied bands who have used ArtistFlags.com are Dance Gavin Dance, I Prevail, Darkest Hour, Senses Fail, Ice Nine Kills, Lorna Shore, Afterlife, and many more. Check them out today. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another week of Peer Pleasure with Dewey Halpus on Adobe Radio and Jabberjaw Media. This is Dewey, your host with the most, bringing great content another week to you guys. And to this episode is a huge episode for the show. 
Um, our guest is probably one of the most influential people in punk rock uh, to this day. Uh, Mr. Ian Mackay from Fugazi, Minor Threat, Embrace, Teen Idols, and The Evens. And he's got a new project he's working on right now. We didn't talk too much about it. It's a little bit under wraps. Um, but definitely, you know, going to be putting out some more content. I know it's been a while. So uh, he's also the founder of Discord Records. And we had a great conversation. We've been working on this for about, I don't know, four months now, maybe three months, going back and forth, trying to figure out a time and making sure, you know, it's what we both wanted to do. And uh, it happened and it was great. So I had a great conversation with Ian. It is a longer episode, just like last week's with Larry Livermore. Um, it goes about an hour and 18 minutes. So if you're listening on Adobe Radio, uh, you'll get the first hour and then download on iTunes for the full version later. Um, Ian and I went into a lot of subjects uh, from artistic limitations to um, being a, a curator of the scene in D.C. Um, and just being around uh, all that all that uh, history and, and museums and everything else in D.C., how uh, his mother... Uh, you know, basically chronicled, chronicled her whole life into uh, these tapes and letters and everything that she left to Ian when she passed. And he's got a whole couple file cabinets full of basically her whole life, which is probably the best gift you can get from a parent. Um, and as he said, you know, the parent never dies, just the body. And that was really a, really a cool thing because um, he definitely is able to, to go back and revisit things. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Fugazi live series um, and Went into, you know, uh, a lot of different subjects. It was a great conversation. Talked about, um, you know, the guests I have on my show and, and things like that and why I choose these people and, and things like that. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. But I'm going to keep this intro short because I want you guys to hear uh, everything and, and not get too bogged down with me rambling on and on. So uh, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Mr. Ian Mackay from Discord Records. Dewey, how you doing? I'm good. Good. You got a few minutes? Yes, a few minutes. Yep, I can do it though. Let's okay. Check. Let's the chat. All right. I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, Ian Mackay from Discord Records. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit, um, first off, about some uh, artistic limitations. I know um, in listening to interviews in the past and, and kind of what you've done so far, um, I guess limitations might not be the right word, but... Um, how like discord releases dc bands only um you know fugazi um you know guitar amp no effects um you know with the evens using the baritone guitar playing you know free spaces versus traditional venues um how do, do you do you come about these things naturally or is it something you you think about before you start both um in terms of just me, this is just me talking about my work, not the other people in the in the bands or 
or just my my aesthetic um, <clears throat> is to have less options. I just find options maddening. Um, and uh, years ago, I came across a quote. I don't know who said it, but it <clears throat> was an artist. And he or she said, I like to paint myself into a corner and then paint my way out. And I, that really resonated with me, this idea of using, you know, using your your art or your form of expression to, um, to get out of the, the puzzle that you created for yourself with that form of expression. So um, it's just, it was really, it was a compelling idea. And I think, you know, initially probably I just, you know, I was a rudimentary guitar player, so I didn't see any reason to junk it up with a lot of effects. Um, I thought instead of trying to mask it, just, you know, own it. And uh, and for Gazi, for instance, I used basically the same, well, not even basically, exactly the same guitar and the same amp for pretty much the duration of the band. You know, I mean, obviously when we toured maybe in, Japan, we might have rented a back line. I always had the guitar, and I mean, it was basically two Gibson SGs that I played the entire time. And to be honest, I still play those guitars. Those are the guitars I play, and um, I, I think I just like the idea of tools. Like I just like a simple tool, and then challenging myself to come up with different um, sounds or textures, using, letting my hands try to figure that out. This is not to say that, you know, people who use pedals or effects are somehow, you know, cheating or not keeping it real. I think that if they're if used well, they can be really profound. I'm a huge Jimi Hendrix fan. I think that he really played the effects. What I'm not as enamored of is process sound, which I find most pedals are very, they process sounds. And to a lot of the band I hear, I just, I can't really hear the humanity. I just hear the the processing and that is just not that's not interesting to me but in terms of you know my my life i think there's you're correct in, in noting that i think i enjoy um just curating thing of making you know, having this you know tight thing okay we're just going to do this one thing and then then it, you can you're free you know you're free you don't have to worry about the other options anymore like you know i i you know i have been you know i have been a vegan for over 30 years now and um and it's not like i don't it's not a judgmental thing on my part as a decision on my part how i want to live i don't i'm not interested or care how other people decide See, that's not my point and i'm not i don't have anything any problem with other people's decisions um but you know in doing in having this diet people are like oh don't you feel don't you feel that you're really uh you know, limited, aren't you missing out on things? But I don't. I actually feel like my life, I'm freer because when I when I go to most restaurants I go to, there's like one or two things that I that fit for me. And that's the things I'll have. But I don't have to sit there and agonize over, you know, which, which style of burger I'm going to have because I'll have the one that is actually doesn't have the meat in it. You know, that it just seems, this, it's just a different way of living. I think that things should be simpler. And it's interesting because the digital world that, you know, has completely um, overwhelmed our society. Um, that is nothing but a pure manifestation of options. And it, I think it's driven people insane, you know, and insane to the point that, 
you know, any number of, you know, really toxic things can move into our lives, you know, as a result. So I just try to keep things simple. You know, I just like, you know, I like talking on the phone. And I'm not a fucking Luddite. You know, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just telling you that this is how I, it just seems, it just, I just like it. I just prefer to do things this way. And, um, uh, and when it comes to music, you know, like when I, when Amy and I started the evens, you know, I thought, all right, I mean, there was a lot of rationale to, to that. That was actually a band where, you know, ahead of time, you know, we were talking about it and I said, I don't want to put, you know, I just don't want to play rock clubs because I felt like rock clubs are primarily bars. Um, bars are, you know, they are, their, their economy is based essentially on self-destruction. Um, not always for everybody, but just in general, I think that we can agree that there's like a self-destructive component to, you know, consumption of alcohol. Um, and I thought it was ironic given the fact that I've never been a drinker. Uh, I thought, it, A, it was ironic that um, my particular form of expression, my art could only be sort of presented in places where that was the, that was the, the economy. That was like the, you know, the point of those establishments. Um, that was ironic to me. And I also thought it was interesting that music in general, which is, I would argue maybe the most, um, important form of sort of artistic expression. I think of music as probably, you may see me, I've said this before, but you know, it's a form of um, communication that probably predates language. Uh, so, you know, it's really pretty essential part of our lives. Um, you know, it was around before videography, for instance, you know, and it was, it was like around, you know, it's like, it was a, a really important form. And, uh, and yet, somehow, it's been consigned to this really specific arena. You know, like when you talk about, you know, rock or whatever, the, you know, that the, these are the kind of the places where you can consume or you can experience music are largely, and they have these, you know, these alternate lines of, of uh, business. And so I thought I'd really like to get out of that and not play in those places. Uh, and the, um, you know, I thought of, you know, some thinking about what pushes us into these places. Well, one thing is that the entire economy has been skewed by um, it's like a dependency that music has gotten uh, because uh, because there's just other money coming in and people, you know, it, it, music became sort of like a sideline to that industry. Um, and just by the way, to be clear, like anyone who questions that the alcohol industry doesn't you know, have an effect or, you know, a control on music can all you need to do is just look at the age, the age limit stuff. You know, that is clear. Like most everybody I know who's ever loved music, loved music at age 15 or 16. In fact, maybe that was the time in their lives where music was the most um, important to them. And yet at those ages, they weren't able to go see the very bands that changed their lives. And the reason they couldn't see them because they weren't old enough to drink alcohol. So I feel like that is like un, unimpeachable proof that the alcohol industry has had this way like, profound effect on music. So um, I was interested in trying to get out of that, not because I think all bars should be shut down or anything like that, but rather just to to cast a vote for alternatives because that sort of thing I've always I've always done anyway. Um, so the thing that compelled us in there was 
uh, to move it to play in bars, when I say us, I mean rock bands, was A, because there was a <clears throat> sort of dependency on the money, and B, because of sound reinforcement. Um, and I guess tacit agreement with the neighbors that loud music was okay in a bar. Um, so then I thought, well, then maybe volume is the key. So volume is the key. That is like, that's the thing that drives us all into these clubs. Maybe we could just turn down. Mm-hmm. And so then we thought, all right, we'll play low. We'll play, we'll just lower the volume. And then like having the baritone was a way of just being a two piece and having low end and, and, and also high end. Cause it's not a guitar. It's not a bass. It's something in between. Um, we both sat down because we're the evens. I'm not, it's not Amy wasn't my backup drummer. Uh, so we were both sitting, you know, it was very, there was a lot of thought went into that. So that, you know, it, it wasn't a formula per se, but it was just a way of creating something that, that, you know, I thought would be sustainable, which, which it was for years, you know, and I mean, now we're working on something, another thing, but that's, you know, we'll see how that develops. Excellent. Okay. Well, I, I just talked to uh, Larry Livermore from Lookout Records um, on Sunday on the show right. and he was talking we talked a bit about gilman and the idea of free space and I, I was really fascinated by his take on it that um you mean you open up a space to people where they can feel safe enough to be themselves and put their ideas out there that you can almost start a whole nother culture um free of all the the trappings of of everyday life and uh i'm, I'm not sure how that would carry across i know you guys are you know played a lot of free spaces and and i mean do you feel the same way on that as far as i mean you came up um in the you know the earlier days of, of punk rock and and i know i've hear i hear most of the stories from the the rollins stuff about seeing you know lux interior and folding his pants and and seeing the ramones for the first time and and uh you know what you were saying about you know being 15 and seeing those bands that could change your life um you know on free space um, what is your thought on that as far as, I mean, is it something you want to, um, promote? I, mean, I, I guess I think, I think, you know, it's what I was saying earlier. I feel like that, the, you know, I mean, a place like Gilman was, you know, it was, and I think is, I think, it, you know, it continues to be, you know, it was a pretty incredible, you know, some incredible things happened there, you know, and mm-hmm. also, you know, there's been some, it was challenging. There was a lot of really, you know, the, you know, people, <clears throat> you can be a little bit like, you know, uh, Lord of the Flies, you know, when you have, you know, the kids who run in the place, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of energy went into, you know, things that were probably not really worth all the energy. Um, but ultimately, if you step back and just think about this, the fact that this was a place that was started in 1986 or 87, and it's sort of, you know, it would be on by any measure unsustainable, and yet the fact that it's still going on would suggest that maybe, you know, another another point goes in the punk column, you know, because punks just have have other reasons to do things other than just to make money. Um, Of course, I think that alternative spaces um, or free spaces, I mean, I believe in the concept of free space entirely, although that doesn't necessarily mean, like I would say, like, for instance, Gilman was a free space, but it was also a space that was, you know, it was run by a collective and there was, you know, again, a real structure around it. I mean, I'm interested in, like, when Amy and I go play like we try to play places that are even more, untra- you know, sort of non-traditional. So we would play, and we played, uh, you know, in Sacramento. We went to play an Indian restaurant. You know, just you know, we just so we had a setup. We had the lights. We had the sound. 
you know, we could play anywhere. We played under, a, you know, a whale skeleton in a museum in Ithaca, New York. We played in, um, you know, a barn in Italy. We played, you know, in a, a an abandoned warehouse in Tokyo. We played, you know, we just play, we can play anywhere. And that, to me, I think the, the idea is really not that this is the place. The place is the thing. It's just that the music and the people are the thing. So the free place, the free space is the ability to inhabit anywhere and make something happen. Uh, Gilman was a place that was, you know, a defined location where things could happen for sure. And I think that the fact it was all ages, um, that to me um, was all ages and, 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 and creatively, I'd say pretty open. I mean, I don't, I'm not, wasn't entirely involved with the politics, but you know, obviously there was an aesthetic that went into booking it. It wasn't like anything went any time. I mean, I think there was probably eras in which they had more, uh, more, they were more curated than others. Um, but having said that, you know, it definitely there was a lot of really visionary and creative stuff happened there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, later on, you know, because the new idea was able to be presented, um, that later on someone took it to market. Uh, and that 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 starts it, it, it begins a whole other line of madness because then other people are like, well, how come we don't get to go to market? But that's just that wasn't the point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that having a free space or alternative spaces, um, what's significant about that is that those are the places where the new idea can be actually, you know, made available to people. Um, the problem with new ideas is that <clears throat> um, they don't. They don't have an audience, and in establishments where, uh, like bars, for instance, audiences are the clientele. So if you don't have an audience, you don't have a clientele. So bars, by and large, are not interested in the new idea. That's why you'll have recognizable bands or bands with members who are recognizable or bands of a certain genre. All of those things have audiences, and thus they have they create clientele for these these, these establishments. But if you are making something that no one has heard before, there is no audience because no one's heard it. How can they know what it is? Mm-hmm. And what was wonderful in my mind about punk and that, you know, and, and the underground in general or the counterculture is that people who engage in that, they are an audience for new ideas. They're interested in what people are coming up with. And quite often it's in these really weird, you know, these basements, these art galleries, these museums, the places where it's not... Um, where you're, it's not mandatory that they generate a certain amount of money, that's where the new idea suddenly appears. You know, I, I often think about that, you know, like, you think about the most significant sort of moments in the history of the world, like these really heavy moments, but they weren't, generally speaking, these things didn't happen in front of, like, 50,000 people. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it happened in front of like ten people. <laughs> that's what you know. So it's usually, you know, I think that's something people to think about. It doesn't. Again, I don't. But I don't mean to suggest that you know, when you have fifty thousand people in an arena or in, or in a field, it just the energy of that many human beings can also be really profound. But it's just a different. There's something else that's happening at that point. Mm-hmm. But the new idea, that's tricky. That's you wouldn't have fifty thousand people for that. Sure, and and so. I know there's been some profound moments, of course, in your life where where things have changed for you as far as, um, you know, going from, you know, arena rock and the only thing available to discovering punk rock. Um, 
I worked at a venue in, in Portland here, and a buddy of mine, Mac Mann from Get Hustle, there's a band playing called Smegma. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. They've been around a long time. Um, mm-hmm. but I've heard of them. I don't know them. They had a lot of homemade instruments and things like that. And, and you know, I'd been into punk rock at that point and into a lot of different things, but for some reason it was driving me insane. And I couldn't figure out why all these people were watching this band. And after the show, Mac grabbed, uh, I told him what I was thinking. I told him, I was like, I just don't understand this. Like, it's just not, it, there's no songs, there's nothing. And he grabbed off the bar, he grabbed a uh, handful of swizzle sticks or coffee stirs, whatever they are. And he said, well, check this out. And he held them in his hand and he dropped them on the counter. And they just went ping, 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 you know, like you drop a, a bunch of sticks. And he said, that right there, that's music. And that right there completely changed, it blew my mind. It completely changed my outlook on what music is, um, you know, if, if anything, to where it's different to everyone. But the fact that you don't need verse, chorus, verse, chorus, you don't need all these things that, you know, are shoved down your throat forever. Um, and I'm not sure if you had a moment like that, like a moment of clarity where you transformed from, you know, uh, writing songs a certain way to how you talk now, how music's one of the most free things there is. Um, do you have a moment like that that you can remember? I mean, I think I probably have had... Oh, I'm probably hundreds of those moments you know they happen all the time uh but i was a, you know a child um uh, my you know i my mother we had a piano in our house and my mother uh played piano she could read she couldn't play by ear but she could read music mm-hmm. um and it was a piano that she had as a child her girl she was growing up and it had been in storage for years and when my parents moved back to washington dc where i was born and they got a house, they finally were able to get the piano out, and my mother started to play it again. Um, and, you know, I, at a very young age, I mean, I used to always say three. I actually don't know if that's the case now. Um, but at some point, at a very young age, I sat at that piano and just pushed on the keys, you know, made sounds, and I started to get a sense of the corresponding like the, the tones of those keys and what happened, the attack of them and the sounds, and then how and I could mix them. And I actually, I started to write songs as a child, like very, very simple songs, you know, just essentially like, you know, some version of Louie Louie or something like that. But it didn't matter because it was just intoxicating for me to be able to organize sound in a way that had some kind of emotional effect on me. Um, uh, it was fascinating to me to see my mom play. I, I, could, I could not read music at the time, and I still can't read music, but um, it was really interesting for me to see the way she could, because she's looking at this piece of paper and moving her hand around, she was able to pluck out of the air at least um, these melodies. Uh, I've often thought about, you know, in the, say, the 1800s, that people, the first time they ever heard a tune would be, you know, for some, as they were playing it with their own hands. That's really interesting to me. Because, mm-hmm. you, you know, you'd be living, you know, you'd have a piano and you're living out somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and then you, you know, the Western Union guy or somebody drops off some sheet music, and you put up and you play it, and that's the first time you ever hear the melody, because you're playing it. Which is a really different experience from what I think most of us have. 
where we hear things and then we listen to them, listen to them, listen to them on all various devices. And then, you know, if, if we're musicians, we might try to try to play it or something like that. Or, you know, but in this case, the first time people heard it, they were actually playing it. Um, and that was really interesting to me. And I played piano as a kid regularly. Then I tried to figure out how to play piano, uh, play guitar because I got into rock music. And you know, I saw Jimi Hendrix and just couldn't believe couldn't believe what he was doing with the guitar. And um, but the guitar didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. You know, it's probably a little bit like your smegma experience. I just didn't understand in terms of how to how to make how to get from the piano to the guitar. I just could not. It just didn't make any sense to me at all. And it took me some years um, before I got there. And one of the things that really scared me away from that or discouraged me was just this notion that you had to be like really technically you know proficient uh, or, or otherwise you need not apply really and there were, you know and kids were in my high school who could play guitar were you know pretty cocky about it punk was a total revelation for me um as i had been listening to you know, as you said, arena rock, or mostly, you know, top 40 radio. Like I was going to, you know, I was listening to, you know, anything heavy, you know, Nugent, Aerosmith, Zeppelin, you know, and then, of course, anything heavy on the funk side, you know, part of the Funkadelic, uh, Lakeside, uh, Gap Band, you know, this stuff that we seem like heavy. That's what I was interested in. But punk when I first heard it was so off-putting I just didn't get it at all and I was just, and I was intimidated by it you know I think I I you know it scared me so I was you know argue, you know I would fight it I'd fight the people who liked it and just argue with them about it but finally you know borrowed some records from my sister and a friend of mine and just sat down with them trying to get my mind around them you know and it just I suddenly just hit me like, I got it. Like, I got it in a way. And it was interesting because it was, you know, for most people, like a record like Nevermind the Bollocks, for instance, the Sex Pistols' first album, mm-hmm. and really their only album. Um, for most people today, when they hear that, it just sounds really like a standard rock record. But con- contextually, it was so otherly that it's hard to describe how extreme and how intense and insane it was to listen to that record and you know the kind of thing where you'd have to listen to it in private you'd be like looking at some porn magazine or something like for them you know you have to like close the door because it was just so crazy sounding uh and um and also had cussing on the record which i was you know you're not used to hearing angry cussing and uh it was just shocking and um but I made I connected. It was close enough to rock that I kind of made that connection. And then I realized what I what I was dealing with was was a vast underground music scene um, that was you know not didn't all sound the same by any means. But it, it, it these are people who had made music for other reasons. You know, they weren't. It wasn't just a, this commercial enterprise. And they weren't just trying to get laid and they weren't, you know, they, they weren't just trying to be paid. There was, there was another reason and it had to do with the sort of um, unrelenting desire to create and, uh, and finding that the place to do that, you know, the canvas in which to operate is the one you don't see because it's the underground canvas. 
because the marketplace can't can't tell it what to do. Uh, and that really changed my life. And I turned the radio off at that time, and I've never turned it back on to this day. So bands that are like, considered top 40, I genuinely don't know what they sound like. I just don't know. I mean, or I have an idea maybe, but I, I can I could certainly name check a lot of the bands that are, on, that are on the radio, but I wouldn't know. I wouldn't. I don't. Wouldn't know if I heard the song. Even a band like it's funny, like you know, that a band like um, Guns N' Roses. Mm-hmm. Like I genuinely only know the Welcome to the Jungle song. As long as I say, oh, that's that Guns N' Roses band. I just never did time with it. It was not to suggest that they're a bad band or. It's just that when I got into punk, I realized that there was this almost infinite world of music out there that was not being pushed down my throat by advertisers, you know, mm-hmm. that it was that, you know, and that I could spend my entire life listening to that, you know, I could spend many lives over. There's so much music out there to study. So I decided, why would I line up at the fast food cafe when there's so much more interesting stuff out there to study. And I decided that's what I wanted to do. And it's, you know, I mean, I'm not, for many people, you know, radio, like current radios, that that really is helpful for them. That's great. And then I'm not saying these people aren't good songwriters. I'm sure they are. I'm just saying that, you know, if given the opportunity to, to study something that is the product of a, like, you know, very, um, carefully processed studio like you know <laughs> the production level is so everything is you know auto-tuned and tweaked and all that stuff versus hearing you know a recording of you know uh, you know you know a fellow cootie record or a you know or a nina simone record or just things that are so organic that man that's just way more interesting to me that's what i want to study Absolutely, and that's a, that's a good point because I mean that and and Nina Simone's fantastic, but just the, um, I mean, I don't think it's kind of strange now how there's so much like you're saying with the auto tune and everything. How back in the days when you know and and Larry and I were talking about this too that rock and roll, I mean, and making money at doing mu- at playing music basically to where you're I mean rich and famous. Uh, has only been around for a limited amount of time, and it's kind of circling oh, a back. A amount of time now, though. We're talking about half a century. Yeah. No, not too bad. Yeah, and uh, you know, and and I want to to switch into. I mean, you're you're you're. Well, I should say one thing before you switch. Let me just point out one thing. There's a. I mean, I don't use phrases like back in the day. Mm-hmm. Like that's something I hear a lot, but I understand. I understand the concept of it. I want to make it really clear that. People talk about music today. When we're talking about that, we're talking about top forty music, and that top forty music had a parallel. Like you know, back when I when I in the nineteen late seventies and early eighties, there were bands like Foreigner and you know whatever those kind of bands. They were top forty. Mm-hmm. Right now, as we speak, there are people, you know, making really fascinating, interesting music, organic, incredible music, and we are unaware of it because it is underground. The same way, if you and I are counterparts of, say, somebody who had a, you know, a podcast or a radio station in 1982, and I was in Minor Threat in 1982, you know, like, I'm sorry, if I was in 1982, I'd been in a band. Imagine if I had been in a band for 30 years. My my most famous band were in the early 50s, and you were a a person who had a radio show, and you were interviewing me. Well, you never would have heard of Minor Threat, right? Mm -hmm. Minor Threat and those bands were so underground, it's crazy. 
In Meyer Threat, when Meyer Threat stopped playing in 1983, our best-selling record was about 5,000 copies. It's pretty, pretty small uh-huh. when you think yeah. about it relative to, you know, since then, you know, that, you know, depending how you add up all the different formats and not even including streaming or digital stuff, you know, Meyer Threat has sold almost a million records now. So that's a lot of change. Um, those, you know, the thirty some thirty three years since we last, or thirty four years now since we last played. Um, so I just think that, that that it would be it is a disservice to musicians today to talk about nowadays being like also processed. I'm really talking about radio. That's mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. The same way I wouldn't have been, I didn't want to listen to the Eagles. You know, there's bands today. I'm like, it's not that. I think it's fine. I just have other things I want to listen to. That's all. Now you can change the subject. Sure. Well, one thing you said there, too, is really interesting, how you're talking about Minor Threat, you know, selling only that many copies back then and till now, you know, almost a million records. I mean, how how do you feel about that? I mean, is it something that excites you, or is it something where you're kind of like wondering what, you know, what caused that, that surge there? I mean, I guess it's not a surge over the last 30 years, but um, what is um, your take on that as far as is now it's more popular than ever? Well, I don't know if it's, I don't know. I don't know if I would say that. I don't know. It just is what it is. I don't, I don't, I don't have a, um, I don't, I'm not excited about it and I'm not unexcited about it. It just is my work. I just do the work. Sure. And I guess I feel like that. I do know that when my threat broke up, um, you know, we were, the four of us did not agree on what to do with the band. We had different ideas about how the band should proceed musically and how it should proceed on a, on business level and just we just didn't disagree we just disagree but we all we did on the other hand we did agree that the work we had done the song we'd written were, were fucking great we loved our music mm-hmm. we're like let's just stop here let's stop and that way we don't put out like the next record that's going to completely call into question all the stuff we did before you know like you, if you don't know where you're going you, you gotta you know let up on the gas and um and at that moment just, I feel like that was really, I'm so thankful that the four of us decided to bail because in that way, my Threat just became like, it just is what it is. And I like that. I like books that have the last page. The books that are unending, those are problematic because you can't finish them. Um, but when a book has, you know, great books, there's always the last page. And you're like, wow, okay. That impacted me. So my Threat had a beginning and a middle and an end. Uh, the fact that people are still interested and still want to visit with it, great. You know, I will also say that when I wrote the lyrics to my thread, I quite deliberately never mentioned a political name because I didn't want to date the music. Mm-hmm. And if you look at a lot of early, you know, a lot of the early punk hardcore bands, you know, they, <laughs> there's a lot of Reagan stuff. But I always felt like, oh, I'm not going to like lessen my music by mentioning that guy, you mm-hmm. know. I, what I was trying to write about in my threat was being a kid, you know, and I felt like that the teenage, you know, being a teenager and the kind of stuff that, you know, that I was dealing with at the time was, I, I was, I assumed it was kind of universal. Like they would just keep on going or at least would be, you know, timeless. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm, I like it, you know, like I'm, you know, every once in a while I hear from like a 12 year old or 14 year old now. And they say, I really love my threat. I'm like, that's incredible. But I don't think like I'm a genius. I just think, it's great. I love. I love that this is music that, like, you know, that people are interested in. And I, but I don't. I don't. But my work is just to continue. 
So, you know, I think that the, you know, I think part of my threat success is, is the fact that I was in Fugazi, you know, and I think that, you know, to continue to do work and people get interested in it. Um, you just, just, but I think for me, I just, I like to say, I just work with some, on what's in front of me every day. I am not worried about the future and I'm not like obsessed with the past. I just work with what's in front of me. Okay. And with Fugazi, I mean, did you notice a big um, difference where a lot of people knew who Fugazi was and didn't know Minor Threat or vice versa? Uh, was it separated that much or was it like... Uh, no, in the beginning, it was like, you know, people were very aware of Minor Threat and, you know, quite often would yell for Minor Threat songs. Mm-hmm. At some point, I think people realized that Fugazi was not Minor Threat. The only one member of Minor Threat was in Fugazi and that we were never going to play a Minor Threat song. And then, you know, the, the Fugazi would have to be taken on its own merits. And, you know, I think that then at some point people were like, okay, maybe it's Fugazi. And, you know, I'm sure there were people who liked Minor Threat were never aware of Fugazi. I'm sure there were people who were like Fugazi that were never aware of Minor Threat. You know, I had an experience once, you know, just to give you an idea of perspective that mm-hmm. I thought was interesting. Is that Fugazi put out, you know, I don't know, a dozen records or whatever, like that, 10 records. And, um, and we did, um, you know, we were on tour in, um, uh, it was probably around 2000, I don't know, maybe 2000 or 2002, somewhere around there. Anyway, uh, I think we were in England. And this guy came to the show and he said, oh, my God, that was the first time I'd ever seen you. And it was a great show. And I said, well, thanks. And he said, I was really surprised by how much singing you did. And I thought, whoa, what? <laughs> like, I go, what do you mean? He goes, I just didn't know you guys had so many songs with vocals. And I said, I, I said to him, well, I don't, uh, I mean, do you not have a record? He says, well, I have instruments. But instrument is the soundtrack to the movie. Uh-huh. And that record is, is a bunch of just instrumental stuff. That's all he knew about us. He didn't know anything else. He just bought that one record. He didn't even know there was a, a movie. He just had heard the record and liked it and came to see us. So his entire perspective of the band was it was one instrumental record. And I, that made me so happy. Because it just shows, uh, you know, it's your point of entry. Like how where people come into things has a huge, you know, effect on the way they, you know, how they find everything else. I, I can tell you a story about, like when I first got into punk, we discovered, you know, my friends told me about a record store in Rockville, Maryland, which is, you know, 15 miles north of Washington. Um, and it was a store called Yesterday and Today Records. And at the time, those stores like that were called import stores because they imported records from England, and that's where a lot of the punks and independent stuff was coming from. Um, and so we would drive out there to go see what the punk new wave underground music, what was happening. That's where you could find those records. Um, so when you get there, you know, I'm just looking at, you know, these, you know, these just racks filled with records. I've never heard any of them. I don't know any of them. I'm just looking at them and trying to know get my mind around what's going on and i would take records up to the owner this guy skip groff and i'd ask him oh what does this record sound like what's that sound record sound like i remember um like another person asked skip um what's your stiffle fingers record is the stiffle fingers first album little material and um he said what does this record like sound like and skip said oh it's kind of sex pistolish and i immediately ran over and just grabbed a copy for myself i had no idea what it sounded like i mean to me it doesn't really sound like sex pistols but it's a great great record um, but another time I asked Skip, like, what does this record sound like? And he said, kind of doubled undergroundish. And I was like, well, okay. 
But I was I had no idea what he was talking about. I'd never heard of the Velvet Underground. I had no clue. As I walked away from him, I was just trying to understand what do those words mean, Velvet Underground-ish? And I thought it just must mean there must have was an enormous amount of very soft bass or something. Mm-hmm. I couldn't understand <laughs> what it meant. So there was like this incredible education. Like my perspective, where I was coming from, my point of entry, which was, you know, 1970, really late 78, early 79, uh, you know, my education about music was starting at that point. I was just telling a friend of mine that, you know, the, the first time Black Flag came to the East Coast, um, we all went to New York to see them from D.C. And then they came down here and played in D.C. and they stayed uh, in my family's house, my parents' house. My brother and I still lived at home. And so we had all Black Flag sleeping, like, you know, on my floor. And um, they stayed for a couple of days. We had a really amazing time with them. Um, you really haven't lived till you come upstairs and you see your mom in a robo making pancakes and smoking cigarettes together. And, um, <laughs> but I, um, robo is the drummer of Black Flag. Uh-huh. But um, when they were leaving, they were, you know, they, I remember they had a van and we were all standing around the van talking and goofing around. And I, I think I said, oh, so what do you guys listen to on the road? And they said, um, oh, you know, we listen to a lot of Sabbath, a lot of Stooges. Well, I was surprised here about Sabbath because Sabbath was, in my mind, like a heavy metal band. And I just didn't realize that, you know, was, I was learning. I didn't realize, I didn't know that much about Sabbath. But I knew, I knew who they were at the time. And but then when they said the Stooges, I was really confused because I didn't even know that the Three Stooges had made music. Because <laughs> I, I didn't know, I had no idea who the Stooges were. <laughs> I was completely naive about all this stuff. And um, so this is sort of my, um, you know, like it was, a, it was a way of just, you know, it was like a quick immersion, you know, of, into this whole other world. And I think people's perspective on things is where they, their point of entry really affects how they look at the rest of music you know and i'm really happy that when i got into it that the view didn't just open like to the present but it opened to the past and thus ensured the future right because mm-hmm. as soon as i knew there was so much music to study like when i understood like i heard like you know, but let's say you know about underground or <clears throat> the monks or like you know all these bands that were had already occurred you know throughout the ages then that you had to believe and I could see what was going on in front of me, like the Cramps and the Ramones and the Bad Brains, the Damned, all that, and the Clash, all these bands that I saw in 1979, like these bands were like, the fact that they existed and I was seeing them, you just had, how could there not be great music still to come? So it was, it was a great moment. Absolutely. That's hilarious. <laughs> Robo and your mom making making breakfast together. That's that's uh, We stayed on a lot of floors and woke up on a lot of strange kitchen floors bedroom floors whatever where the parents didn't know we were staying at this person's house and we didn't know that it wasn't their house and asking us you know what the hell are you doing on my floor and then you know happened to bridge that gap and and um that's one thing you know staying with people on the road and stuff like that is is you find out a lot about people and uh i want to ask you a little I bit at fugazi i remember fugazi played in a we stayed we played a show I think it was in West Virginia. I can't remember now. It was probably 88 or 89. And we were at this gig. After the gig, we were looking for places to stay. And this guy said, oh, you can stay. You can stay. I got a place you can stay. So we go to this house, and we're asleep. And it's probably around, like, 2 in the morning. And this guy comes in. And he goes, what the fuck? Who the fuck are you? I'm like, hey, it's, it's great. We're, we're the band. We're a band. We're just, we're, we played in... 
you know, like Jake, so we could stay here. I don't remember the guy's name, but like Jake, he goes, Jake doesn't fucking live here. What the fuck are you talking about? He, he was like, I don't know, man. Jake just said, he was like, Jake's a fucking dick. I don't know why, you know, he didn't even, he, he didn't pay the rent. And we're like, okay. And he goes, he goes all right, well, you can stay. <laughs> we're like, fuck, man, that was, that sucked. And then at around um, seven in the morning, like he got up to leave. And as he, before he left, he just put on like Black Flag's My War at like 10 and just blasted us. And everyone, you know, we, you know, he only had like four hours, five hours of sleep at that point. Yeah. It was like just such a, you know, but I mean, I think anyway, I relate to your story. I understand. <laughs> I've stayed on a lot of floors in my life. And there's moments where you're like, wow, this is not what I thought was going to happen. Yeah. You have to explain to someone's mother why you're on their, you know, kid's floor and you had no idea. <laughs> but that's a gift. You know, that's a gift to be able to, to have those experiences. Absolutely. I wouldn't And for trade... everybody involved. Yeah. Good for the mom to find you on the floor, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, you're kind of a curator now as far as the, the Fikazi Live series and Discord records being kind of like a, uh, I wouldn't say a museum, but you're curating history and music and, and uh, your own career. And, and I believe me, I looked high and low. I'm from Alaska, and I was there... Uh, when you guys played Alaska, and I've, I've searched through all my friends before this interview saying, hey, does anyone have video or audio of that show? Because I wanted to be able to say, hey, you can add it to the list because I noticed it's one that's missing. And uh, Not as of yesterday. I found are you serious? a recording, and I just put it up at Egan Center. I, did, I haven't put it up yet, but I've got the, I've entered it into the data bank, so I mean, it'll, eventually we'll get it up. I just finally found a recording for the Egan Center. God damn it. That's Thanks. fantastic. Yeah, I don't have any photos, though, so if anybody has any photos, that'd be good. I could absolutely get some of those. I know I can find some of those, but, um, you know, it, it, and being in D.C., where there's so much history and, uh, you know, um, museums and, and everything else, did you kind of fall into deciding that that uh, you were going to be kind of a curator of this stuff, or is it something that's always interested you as far as history and, and preserving um, preserving culture? You know, it's hard for me to think that D.C., like, I mean, I think when people talk about Washington, D.C., they think about the federal city, which mm -hmm. is not where I live. Yeah. I live in Washington, D.C., which is a city unto itself. I'm a fifth-generation Washingtonian, so I just, and, like, we, like we're the people that don't work for the federal government. We're just, like, the people who have been essentially occupied by the federal government. Um, so it, I, it's hard for me to sort of stomach the notion that, like, that, you know, like, he really got into history because he grew up in a town so filled with history. Um, that is not that that doesn't really resonate with me. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> conversely, you know, I imagine that growing up in a town where has a really good libraries and great museums and they're all free, uh, I'm I suppose it may have, may well have had an effect. On it. I don't know. I mean, these are things I these are questions I can't answer. More to the point, I think is my mother, especially my mother. My mother, I mean, all my family, all my, my parents and my grandparents, they were all people who wrote, they were writers, one form or another. You know, a lot of newspaper people, um, authors, like mystery writers, um, playwrights, poets. Um, you know, I had, my family was full of writers. And my mother especially was really, she was, um, she was kind of a historian in her own right. Like, she really, she kept journals for close to 60 years. Um, 
she died about 12 years ago. Um, she was 71, but she started journal when she was around eight. And um, she just kept, you know, they, you know, they would sort of let, kind of go on and off, but she kept documentation of her life, you know, until she died, you know, really until, you know, the very end of her life, she was leaving, you know, she was writing stuff down or doing recording stuff. So when she died, she left, you know, probably um, two or three filing cabinets filled with documents, like her journals um, and correspondence. An incredible gift. Like anytime, you know, if you, you know, if you miss your mom, just go visit her. You know, it's yeah. all there. You know, and That's and uh, um, and I think that she really encouraged me. For instance, she said, "Write it down because then you don't have to remember it." You know, uh, which it didn't make sense at first, but then I realized that part of writing things down is that it actually leaves a trail in your brain. Like you remember the things you write down. I actually, I kept pretty steady journals from the 83 until about 94 and those years i have a really pretty clear memories of things um and then after that when my journal i may have lapsed i kept uh, uh, you know i might write a little bit here and there but by and large i was just too busy i stopped i i had other i just decided it was insane to write everything down that is a mush i don't i don't remember a lot of that era those years the same way but i have these really clearly like articulate memories from 1986, you know, for instance, which is funny when you think about it. It, But I think the actual act of writing it to committing it to print left a trail in my brain, you know, and Mm -hmm. I had this realization some years ago. I was, you know, I've done a lot of driving. Like I did for Fugazi, for instance, I did almost all the driving on tour, um, especially in the later years. Uh, I've driven across the country many times and driven all through Europe and, Australia, and, you know, just been a lot of driving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of booking the band, I was also, you know, I was responsible for figuring out how to get to the venue. So I took directions, and I developed a really good sense of location and direction, uh, and I always knew kind of where I was. Uh, um, a few years ago, I was doing a talk at University of Connecticut, and uh, I took a train up to New Haven, and then rented a car and was going to take the, you know, it should take an hour and a half or so drive up the road to, um, I think up 93, up to Storrs, Connecticut, where um, University of Connecticut is. And I had gone to, I think it was probably at the time, MapQuest or some of, one of those sites, and I just printed out the directions, and then I, you know, took the tramp to New Haven and got in the car and started driving. I was just driving along, listening to music, and, and I suddenly felt completely disoriented. And I thought, that's strange. I've been to University of Connecticut so many times. I've done this drive plenty of times. Um, why am I feeling so dislocated at this very moment? And I realized that I hadn't written the directions down. I just printed them up. So I didn't have, I didn't leave any, there's no imprint. I just printed them up, but I had to keep looking at them and looking at them. So then the next time I did a travel, I just, I, yeah, because you can't get direction from people over the phone anymore, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, because nobody knows. They exactly. say, just use your machine. Right. So, and so your GPS. Right. Which, you know, and I just don't, I just don't have, I didn't have, I didn't have at that time, and I don't have one now. I just don't use GPS. Um, so then, so now I'll just look at directions, I'll go online, and then I'll just write them down. And I can, it's, and that shows you the way my brain works. Like, you know, like when you write it down, you remember. Like the other day, I had to like I had to call somebody, and I just, you know, I I looked. He sent he sent me his email on, on an email, and I thought, all right, I'll, 
I, I, you know, I just going to go up to his place and, you know, I just need his number in case the door was locked. And so I just jotted it down because I, you know, I thought I could remember it, but I wasn't sure. But I jotted it down, but then I totally remembered it. I didn't have to look at it because I had left, I had left a trail membrane. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that my mother's idea was, was right. And I think that she was always good about, she just kept documentation. Now, in my mind, I guess I kept things um, because they were important to me. You know, that's all. Like, I just kept flyers and ephemera. Like, Jeff Nelson, who was my, you know, the partner at Disco Records and mm-hmm. the drummer of Nottles and My Threat, he was really, he kept everything. He's, he's got an incredible collection of stuff. And, to, and so did I. We, you know, we just kept things. And Henry keeps stuff. Like, we just, we just hang on to things. They were important to us. And at some point, um, probably about eight or nine years ago, um, I was like, my God, I have so much stuff, and why? Why do I have it all? Like, why do I have thousands of flyers, thousands of fan games? What do I have all this stuff for? And what is the purpose of it? You know, and uh, because I wasn't looking at it, you know, mm-hmm. I've you know, I have thousands of letters. Um, this coincided with a a, a friend of mine uh, had died; he committed suicide, and. Um, Another friend, like mutual friend, had been tasked with the, he was the executor of this guy's will, mm-hmm. and he, my my mutual friend said, um, said oh you know, so and so did me the greatest favor in the world because his will was super straightforward. He had like enumerated everything he had and directed it all, so nobody had to guess what to do with the. The letters. No one had to do guess what to do with that. And he said that was such a gift. Like I'm sad that he couldn't stay with us anymore. But what a gift to not burden me with trying to decide what to do with all of his comics or what to do, or burden me with what to do with his family photos. You know, because that would have been that would have been painful. You know, and anyone, mm-hmm. and, and if you've known anyone who's died and you somebody had heard all their stuff, you're like, oh my God, what do I, because you have to throw it away, a lot of it, and that's painful. Yeah. You know, that's painful. So, I realized, I have all this stuff, and, you know, if if I were to die, and I will die at some point, of course, but if I was to die, someone's got to figure this shit out. Mm-hmm. So, I thought, I better do this, because I got a brain. I still can remember all this stuff. I know I can look at them and think, oh yeah, that is a ticket to this thing. And that's why I kept it. And this is that. And, you know, so I, I ended up, um, you know, had an awful lot of help from people um, who, for various reasons, you know, maybe for a college thing or some kind of, you know, they needed for a school project or whatever. They volunteered their time or worked for very reasonable prices and helped me organize things. Um, but at the same time, like I think for them, like there's this one woman, Nicole Prokopenko, um, who's been working with me, she also works for the Smithsonian Folk Life Center, and she has processed many questions of people's papers. Um, but working with me, she said it was really interesting because I'm the first person, the first question she'd ever worked on where the person was alive and sitting at the table. So suddenly when she takes out a letter, and the letter is from so-and-so, I can say, oh yeah, that was so-and-so's boyfriend or girlfriend, mm-hmm. and they're writing about this. Whereas had she been processing a collection that had been dropped off by, like, the grandchildren of somebody, you know, who no idea who, no one has any idea who anybody is, they, she, could, she, she could spend hours trying to figure out what's the connection? Why is this person writing? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been, that's been really interesting. And now, you know, we've just finished phase one. We have 
basically 35 years of Discord, Mirethreat, Fugazi, and Ian correspondence, you know, organized. Now, what is it for? I don't know. It doesn't matter. I just I did it because that way, you know, when I drop off, uh, my wife and my family don't have to figure out what to do with the kids there, and they can just go. We can stay together. It's organized. Um, and I think it's a great resource. I would like to think it's more potentially could be a resource for people who are interested in investigating an era in which kids, for the first time really, started their own bands, started their own fanzines, put on their own shows, did all this stuff not with no hope of trying to climb some fictional ladder, fantastical ladder to success. Mm-hmm. You know, that this was people were interested, I think in the early eighties what people were looking for was a tribe to belong to and they made it. They created it. Punk won. You know, that's the way I look at it. So but because of the, the nature of it, it is largely not going to be recorded by um, commercial media. Mm-hmm. I mean I don't think Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is going to get it right. <laughs> you know, I don't, you know, they have their mission. It's a different mission. You know, like they're not going to, they have their take on it, but they're, they're concerned are different. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and to me, it's not like, I feel like that their operation is just, it's a different sort of like, you know, there's probably like the, you know, there's a NASCAR. They have a museum and there's probably a museum for the, you know, National Highline association you know like i mean there's like these you know i mean there's each of these things are disciplined in their own right or they're there's for their practices or environments and the, the punk thing is just it's a different thing and i feel like it, in some ways it was just really uh incredible like liberating experience for many many people um and i you know Sadly, the evidence of it is hard to come by because I think a lot of people just were like, oh, I'm done with that, and they throw everything away. Mm-hmm. Um, but also because there was no real app, commercial application, you don't have some, you know, billion-dollar industry, you know, stoking the American interest in it. You know, like I often think about the, like, you know, the, you know Hollywood, like, you know, there's like this absurdly wealthy industry that is, you know, always looking for handouts to get people to pay to preserve this incredible legacy. Pay for your own fucking legacy, people. Like, you know, that's the way I have to, like, I pay for mine. I, yeah. you know, I'm the one who's bankrolled this thing. Uh, but mostly, because I feel like if there's someone, if there's evidence, I'd like to say, here's some evidence, if someone really cares. Mm-hmm. If they don't care, that's fine. I got something out of the experience. Sure. And you being a parent, I mean, you're, you're, your child's going to have access to so many things about his dad and, and uh you know same thing with with grandma now with all that all that correspondence i mean that's just fascinating to me that, that there's that much time captured on paper i mean it, it's and actually on recording my mother used to just set up she would just leave like a panasonic cassette deck recording in and the, just speak. In the kitchen and we just you hear like i have tapes in like 1976 or 77 and my mother's like you know she's playing cards with a friend of hers and drinking iced tea and smoking cigarettes and talking. And then you hear like me and Henry come in from skateboarding, you know, <laughs> we're trying to, it's just crazy. Like I have all this weird, my mother was just interested in, you know, capturing stuff. And I remember she used to run, um, she used to run, like I'd come over to visit and, and she may put on a tape, record, record the, and I used to think, Oh, you know, it's really, 
really funny. Like, mom, you know, it's really, like, she wants to have a little recordings of me to hear when I'm traveling or something. Mm-hmm. But that was, I had it so wrong. Like, it wasn't for her to hear me. It was for me to hear her. Yeah. You know, she didn't listen to those tapes, really. She just made them. Yeah. And they're in a box. And that box is upstairs right now at this courthouse. You know, and there's, like, these tapes of, like, my family talking and arguing and my parents discussing whether marriage has gotten screwy or, I mean, I, I've learned so much and it's really, you know, so I think my mom had a, she had a profound, she has had and will continue to have, even in her death, a profound impact upon the way I, I look at, look at things and approach things. Mm-hmm. That's... The parent never dies though, just the body. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. And that's one of the reasons I have this show is, realizing my musical contributions to the world, a lot of it is either there's a lot of screaming or I'm just playing an instrument to where I want my, I have three kids and, and I want them to have something they can go back and listen to when I'm gone and hear my voice and hear, you know, people I'm talking to and things I was interested in. And, and, uh, that's what I was going to ask you last for my last, you know, little question here is. Actually, on that note, let me ask you a quick question. Sure. Like, I, I looked through your site, and it, it looks like you have a lot of music people, uh-huh. but then you have occasionally sort of porn people, and I'm curious what your how you what, what how you curated that. What is your like, what was what went into that? Well, the the thing with that was the the initial one was uh, I was reaching out to people. Um, you know, that had, that had in the beginning that had some, you know, notoriety or people that I had, um, you know, in music, it was a lot of friends of mine. And I had a friend of mine, uh, that was friends with, uh, Joanne Angel was the first one. And, and, right, uh, I was Angel. fascinated by that industry on, I kind of wanted to just get to the bot and ask some actual questions about, you know, what their life is like, you know, someone that yeah, puts yeah. so I much thought, of themselves out there. I listened to that. that was an interesting interview. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't, I, and I don't, you know, go after it and ask, you know, what's your favorite position and things like that. I was just fascinated on, you know, what got them there, what keeps them there, and right. you know, uh, the last one I did um, with Katya Kassin was, I had reached out to her because I had seen her at all these rallies um, on on uh, different things, uh, feminist rallies, and she's going into social work and trying to pull people out. Um, of that lifestyle or people that have been abused. Um, and that fascinated me and, uh, her transition out of it. And then how she handles her life always, that's always going to follow her. Um, and, and that was, yeah, I, wasn't, I, I saw the, I didn't listen to that one. I also, I'm not familiar. I mean, I, I actually don't know. I mean, I've heard of burning angels, uh, that site or whatever. Mm-hmm. I've certainly heard of that. And I've, was there another one called Suicide Girls? Is that a different one? It's a, that's where it all started. The whole like tattooed alt, they're calling right. it alt porn. Um, and the other reason with Joanna was she's big into music, and Burning Angel used to have bands, touring bands, oh, on I the site. That. They, had a little, they did a tour. You know, I have a, one day I had a call from a friend of mine, or no, it was a female, and she wrote, I'm in, I'm taking, I'm, I'm sitting in a stall at a, um, at a club, what WTF? And there's a photo of a sticker on the inside of the stall, and it just says, "It says E O N M C K A I dot com, Ian McKay dot com." <laughs> and I was like, "What the fuck is that?" So I typed in. Well, I think that's how you spell E O N M C K A I, and it's a porn director named Ian McKay. 
and he does so-called alt punk porn. Uh-huh. You know, like, like basically people with tattoos fucking, you know, yeah. essentially. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and then I read an interview and uh, it was like a little about thing and he says, yeah, you know, I'm gonna, you know I, I, this is, I, it is an homage to Ian McKay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, oh, that's incredible that <laughs> I fucking have a porn director named after, who's named after me. Um, <laughs> It's so interesting. And then I did, but then it was this. Um, I was you know, a city, the city paper, which is the weekly here, contacted me, and um, they uh, they had gotten wind of it, and they wanted to ask me like what my thoughts were about it. And I said, I don't know. I don't know the guy. I've never seen any of his movies. I don't know anything about it. And they said, What do you think about you know punk porn? And I said, I just think it seems a little bit weird because my what my concept of punk is you know i just don't see how you know to me it's like if you if you have two people fucking and one and they have tattoos i guess that's punk porn if the two people were wearing cowboy hats i guess that's cowboy porn it just doesn't really it's just people fucking i don't really understand what makes it punk although i will say and you know i don't i again i've never met this guy i don't know anything really anything about him but you know there was you know uh, I guess they found in their research that he, like, people were like, he's like the fairest director. Or, he, this is years ago, so uh-huh. God knows where he is now. But um, it's very interesting, that world, like, that kind of, that sort of parallel world of, like, how people apply the concept of punk. And, you know, but for me, you know, punk is the free space. So anything goes. Yeah. And well, I mean, it's. Well, yeah, so it's... Whatever. But it was interesting, guys, noticed that you, that I just saw that you had, I just saw your most re- recent. I was like, yeah, I remember there was some other porn thing. And I went back, I'm like, yeah, that's weird. He's got, the, I said, but maybe that's just his, that's his interest. He's in the music and that this is like in this porn punk world or whatever. But, yeah, it's whatever. just another, it's a subculture, seems like a subculture that I think financially is bigger than mainstream, but the, oh, I mean, the, I, think I mean, the, the porn industry is so huge. I mean, I don't know what it's like now, but I mean, the porn industry. I was talking to a filmmaker friend of mine once, and he told me that that the industry, like the like the um, industry, the straight industry, always waits for the porn industry to decide. So, mm-hmm. for instance, in this in this '80s, there was this big competition between VHS and Beta videotape, and you had you remember the two formats? It was two different formats: yep. VHS and Beta. There are two different kinds of tapes, and People are like, you know, movies are being released on both formats because you couldn't decide. Like, no one's like, what do, I, do I have a beta deck or a VHS deck, you know? Mm-hmm. And then one day, beta just disappeared. And the reason it disappeared, as I was told, was because the porn industry said, we're, we're all in for VHS. Yep. And as soon as they made that decision, that's in the beta. <laughs> then, at some point, DVDs come along, and people are like, well, VHS is great, DVDs, it's just kind of a, it's a novelty. And then one day, the porn industry is like, we're all in for DVD. And that's the end of VHS. Yep. Done. You know. And then when streaming comes along, like I don't think people. I mean, I. I mean, and maybe I don't know, but my sense is that the, you know, the technology that really has gone in that is, you know, the quick times, like the things that people look at on, like streaming video. That porn made that call. Like they really, mm-hmm. like they're like, we're going to go with this format, and then thus so goes the industry. Yeah. Very interesting. It's a massive industry, but you know, but I, I can imagine how complicated it must be 
knowing that they're so much of what they do is like, I mean, it's like the, you know, they got to make money and it keeps to the game keeps changing. Exactly. And I try to keep, I like, I like completing things as far as <clears throat> like with some bands, some bands on the podcast, you'll see, I have, I've had all three members on different episodes instead of as a group, because I really want to reach into that. And with the porn thing, I've, I've had three ideas. I wanted one that was currently involved and a business owner, like, you know, like Joanna Angel, one that has gotten out and then one that's in just as an actor. And just to try to get perspective, because it's, I mean, it's a huge thing that no one talks about. And, you know, the questions you want that I wanted to ask haven't been asked. And, and that's kind of where it came from. And, um, you know, and, and just starting out saying, Hey, I'm going to start a podcast. I don't know if I want it to be all music or right. just, you know, so that's kind of where it came from. And, and it's kind of progressed, uh, to now, um, you'll be episode anyway, 22. So clear. Oh, can you put me on pause for a second? I'll be right back. Hold on. Sure. Bear with me. Sorry, that was another interview that I just had to. Um, anyway, never mind. Oh no. So, um, so uh, what was I going to say? Um, what were you saying when you when I interrupted you? Oh, we were talking about how uh, you're going to be episode uh, 22 of the podcast, and when I started, I didn't have a clear idea of what I necessarily wanted to do. I just knew if I didn't start it, I wouldn't do it, and uh, mm -hmm. that's where kind of I reached out to a bunch of people. And surprisingly, a bunch of people said yes. And I was like, okay, now I have 15 people that said yes, and I need to record all this. So then it kind of was a jumble in the beginning to where now I feel a little more comfortable with, you know, who I'm reaching out to and the direction I want it to go. Um, right. Oh, I know. I, what I was going to say also, mm -hmm. just in, in regarding, like, all the stuff about, like, the porn industry, I don't really know any of that. This is just me. Like, this is stuff that I've gleaned from talking to people in terms of like how the industry is direct, you know, has, has been so responsible for these things. So I'm, you know, I am a, I'm a, I totally don't, I'm not an authority on this. It's just something that I thought was an interesting concept that mm -hmm. they would have such a dominant role in the way, um, the, the, the delivery systems of, of the, you know, the, the rest of the, the rest of the culture uses for, on the everyday, you know, it's just interesting that yeah. they would have that much power. But anyway, that's, you know, I'm, I just don't. I just wanted to make to make clear that I'm. This is not an area that I'm a total authority on. I just think I've I've heard from talking to people. Um, sure. Did you have? So you were about to ask me your your wind up question. Before we yes. Got well, it's right? just like a just a just out of curiosity. With with as much as you've documented and and everything else, 
have you ever started thought about starting a, a podcast or something where um, you know your voice is not whether it's you just talking about things or talking to people you mentioned you like talking on the phone and um, I just wasn't yeah, sure if that was in your did, future. You know, I'd be like, if it was like radio um, and there was a, like a live call-in kind of thing. It might mm -hmm. be kind of interesting for me. Yeah. But the I, I like that, but it's you can't really do that as a podcast. No, I just it didn't. I just feel like it's always just never seems seem to be real time ever. And um, I don't know. I mean, people have asked me about it. I like the idea of, like, I like talking to people clearly, and I enjoy, um, but I like talking to people. I don't really enjoy just recording myself talking. That's sure. just not that interesting to me. And if I felt like there was something I could contribute other than just, you know, to the Babylonian tower of chatter that exists now, I mean, I, you know, I, mean, I don't. Like you asked me, you've asked me for I me. Mean, how many months ago did you first you first kind of me in November or something? Yeah, October. Yeah, it was October. A while. Okay, so and I wasn't like, yeah, like, call me tomorrow. Like I'm like, let's just wait because honestly, I'm sick of fucking hearing myself talk. Sure. And I'm on. You know, I get interviewed. I've been interviewed thousands of times. Yeah. Um, and I'm happy to talk to people because like, okay, Dewey, you usually a nice guy, and sure, I'll answer a few questions. I'll have a chat with you. But the but the end of the day, it always ends up with just like another fucking you know, hour of me prattling about shit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't really know. If, I mean, I, you know, I think probably I would hope that like, you know, like I've enjoyed talking to you and I hope that you've enjoyed talking to me, but really that may be the extent of the benefit of this whole exercise. Um, maybe other people will enjoy it or maybe they'll be like, Oh, I don't want to hear this. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I think I'm, I'm ambivalent about, uh, and I think that these days um, there's so much talking going on. Mm -hmm. Uh you know, there's so many podcasts, so many comedians, so many inspirational speakers, like motivational speakers. I find it, I don't know, I'm troubled by it. I feel like that the, the people, and this is not because you're one of these people, but this is, I think that there's this idea that like, this is where there, people can make careers out of like, this is what I could do for a living. I'll just talk to people and I get paid for it, you know? And, um, and then, you know, I, I start to think like, well, that's not really a, that's not really construction work, you know. Like nothing's getting built here. It's mm -hmm. just people just sort of, um, it's, it's sort of masturbatory in a way, and uh, which is funny. I also, but I also love. I listen to podcasts. I, I'm enjoying. I enjoy hearing occasionally somebody. You know, you can occasionally I hear something like, "Well, it was a really interesting piece of audio." Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know if you know, unless I unless I came up with. I was struck by a vision, and I. Had an idea that I thought was like that is a fresh idea and interesting, and people would you know there might be something beneficial to the world. Um, I and mean, I think probably my job is to do what I do, mm -hmm. not just be another. You know, people all say, "Why don't you write a memoir?" But like, I don't know. I mean, one problem with writing a memoir is that then you have to make everybody you know you have to put strings on their limbs and make them dance in your story, right? Yeah. You know, and I'm troubled by that because it's not. Cause I think of myself as somebody who. Uh, yeah, the work I've done, you know, I often use the word we, um, because I uh, obviously, you know, say Fugazi, it was the four of us, and and uh, and and my threat was the four of us, and Discord's been in any number of people who've worked over the years. So, though, you know, I'm this sort of, I've been around all through it all, like I'm this, you know, the one sort of common denominator in a lot of these things. Um, 
I couldn't have done it without everybody else. And I'm not comfortable taking credit for it by myself. And I don't particularly want to make them um, become characters in my story. Um, but also, who hasn't written a memoir? I think that I should get an award for not writing one. And, um, <laughs> and uh, because, it, again, it's sort of like, well, come on. Like, you know, don't, there's something weird going on here. This kind of obsession with ourselves. Um, and I should point out that, you know, like you called me. Like yep. you asked, I didn't call you and say, hey, can I get on your podcast? Sure. I don't, I don't ever solicit to get on people's, I don't, I'm not looking, people are really genuinely, one of the reasons I've kind of put, I say like, well, call me back because then it, it's a measure of whether or not you were, you really are that interested. Yeah. Because if you didn't call me back, then you probably found somebody more interesting to you. Wouldn't be fine. Mm -hmm. I don't care. I didn't give, you know, I really don't care. Like, yeah, I, but you did call me back. So I thought like, okay, well, he's genuinely interested. Yeah. So then I'll have a chat with him. But if you didn't, that would have been fine too. No sure. problem. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I got, too. I got, no, I got no, hey, dude, I got nothing to sell. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I got nothing to sell. I'm just doing my work. Yep. And that's, uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's the main reason uh, that I wanted to talk to you is because, and, it, and I was also terrified at the same time, and this sounds hilarious, but the reason I was terrified is not because I'm talking to you. It's because you've been asked so many questions so many times, probably a million times over. You know, uh, you know, what about straight edge? Why are you vegetarian, vegan? But the same question over and over again. I really wanted to hopefully come up with something somewhat new or at least fresh to where it wasn't exhausting. And that was my well, biggest you worry. Asked, you asked some pretty good. You asked some pretty good questions. Um, my advice to anybody doing the interview is ask questions that you're genuinely interested in. Mm -hmm. I don't think I think most people will ask questions like, "So, you know, what was your first band?" Or they're, they're asking questions they think the readers will be interested in. Yeah. But if you, if a, if a person asks a question that they are interested in, like you asked me this question, I think you started off saying like, "Why, you know, I noticed that you always seem to have like." you strip down like your approach like you put limitations on yeah. um, my, my sense is that's something that you've actually taken notice of and you're interested in it. So you ask me, you're curious about it and you ask a question to me, that's a good question because then it gives me something to talk about. That's not just about my first band or what straight is meant. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause you know, you're, you know, I mean, and I think that that's as a, any interviewer, if he or she were to, if they're going to approach somebody about doing an interview, maybe, figure out why they want to interview them mm -hmm. and then then think about what they're genuinely curious about and just trust that the person will weave this weave things in you know you don't need to you don't need to start from the beginning people always say well, how did you get into music and that, you know that's always the beginning yeah you know and yet like today when we were talking i ended up telling you that anyway yeah I noticed that. <laughs> and that's, uh, I mean, I, that's the cool thing of the podcast. I don't have, I mean, this podcast is on the radio. It does have an air date every week on Adobe radio. And, but I don't have any restrictions to what I can talk about, what I can say. I can ask, you know, anything I want. I just want to be respectful and, and, uh, you know, right. in what I do and not waste anyone's time and to where they get off the phone and say, Hey, that was all right. Not hey, that was amazing, but Hey, that was worth it. You know, that was worth, worth an hour. And, uh, you know, that's where I was, was nervous is I don't want to waste your time because I know, you you know, your time's valuable. And, it, it, I mean, you have a lot to do. Um, yeah, well, I so. have an endless the thing about me is that every day I wake up with way too much to do. Mm -hmm. But every day I wake up with way too much to do that I want to do. Exactly. And that's, 
that's okay. Yeah. The fields will never be plowed. Just do what you can. Yep. Well, Ian, I really appreciate you coming on, man, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time and emailing back and forth, you know, continuously, and and uh, I want to let you go, but... Um, so do you edit this, or do you just run it straight? What do you do? I don't edit it. I mean, the 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 stuff, if there's, you know, like a pause or a, another call or a dog barking, I'll take that out, but I like to put it out, you know, pretty much how it is, because right, oh, it's right. an honest, honest I hope people like it. So I hope people get. I hope people. There's something beneficial in it for people, and if not, then skip to the next one, people. <laughs> well, excellent, Ian. Thank you very much, man, and and uh, have a great day. It was a pleasure talking to you. Take care. Bye bye. All right, guys. That was my interview with Ian Mackay from Discord Records, Fugazi, Minor Threat, Embrace, and the Teen Idols. Uh, one of the best guys in punk rock by far. One of the smartest and insightful. Uh, people I've talked to on this show so far and and I really felt lucky to be able to sit down and have a conversation with Ian you know just one-on-one and ask the questions I wanted to ask and uh, that's like I say that's the one thing on this show that really uh, you know makes me the most happy is being able to tailor the interview to what I want to hear because hopefully it's what you guys want to hear as well Um, but I try not to ask the typical questions that uh, you know you would assume the listener wants to hear necessarily because if they like, I feel like if you guys like my show, um, you like the questions I ask and the people I talk to. So I'm confident that this is another good episode for you guys to listen to and enjoy. So, uh, like I said, if you're listening to this on Adobe radio, it'll be just the first hour full version is up on iTunes, uh, right after it airs on Adobe radio, definitely subscribe and rate the show. Uh, definitely rate the show five stars. If you like it, Definitely helps us with chart position and everything else. Uh, We're going to start trying to do some more detailed show notes as well. It's something I've been lacking on uh, the last, well, I guess the last 15 episodes. But, uh, you know, it is time consuming and I want to be able to get back to that. But uh, we're going to try to start doing that here soon. Um, So definitely check back with us on the show notes. Uh, Check the website, peerpleasurepodcast.com. Instagram and Twitter are up with our uh, information on there. You always see the guest who's coming up. Um, definitely check out our Amazon affiliate link on the website. Uh, 4% of everything you buy goes back to the show when you go through that link. Uh, and definitely uh, follow us up next week. We're going to have another great episode for you. So once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the radio. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of that one time on tour, part of the Jabberjaw Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. 
Join me every week as I chat with guests about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of The Offspring, Thrice, Rancid, Rise Against, and more. Listen and subscribe at JabberjawMedia.com.